Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, January 19th, 2024. Thousands of abortion opponents rally in snowy Washington at the annual March for Life. House Speaker Mike Johnson tells the crowd that the God-given value of human life is an American political idea that goes back to the country's founding. And he says, we can stand with every woman for every child, and we can truly build a culture that cherishes and protects life. President Joe Biden announces another $5 billion in student loan debt forgiveness for over 70,000 borrowers that include teachers, nurses, and firefighters. The House Budget Committee approves a bill to create a bipartisan fiscal commission to recommend ways to reduce the nation's budget deficit and shore up entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, with those recommendations guaranteed fast-track votes up or down in the House and Senate. U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting in Washington, and today we're invited to come to the White House to be with the president. And White House spokesperson John Kirby has asked about a phone call today between President Biden and the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a day after the prime minister flatly rejected U.S. calls to start working towards a Palestinian state, even as Israel's war with Hamas and Gaza is ongoing. That and more ahead on Washington Today. Danny Gokey, American Idol finalist, and his band performing on the National Mall in Washington at the annual March for Life. Held near the anniversary of the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, which established a constitutional right to abortion. And the anniversary is Monday, January 22nd. The Roe decision was overturned in 2022 by the Dobbs decision, sending the abortion issue to the states. Since then, 14 states have passed bans on abortion through pregnancy. Two more have bans on hold because of court rulings. Another two ban abortion when a fetal heartbeat is detected. The website marchforlife.org has a section titled Why We Continue to March. And their answer, with the role of the states being more important, we are also growing a strong state March for Life initiative quickly. However, we will continue to march every January at the national level until a culture of life is restored in the United States of America. One of the speakers at today's rally in Washington was the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana. I am myself a product of an unplanned pregnancy. In January of 1972, exactly one year before Roe v. Wade, my parents, who were just teenagers at the time, chose life. And I am very profoundly grateful that they did. 
See, what we have to do right now, and I believe the reason all of you are here is you understand that we have to build a culture that encourages and assists more and more people to make that same decision. This is a critical time to help all moms who are facing unplanned pregnancies, to work with foster children, and to help families who are adopting, to volunteer and assist our vital pregnancy resource centers in our maternity homes, and to reach out a renewed hand of compassion and to speak the truth in love. That's what we do. All of us can play a role in that really important work. This is also a pivotal time to promote quality health care for both women and their unborn children. This week in Congress, you'll be encouraged to know the House passed the Pregnant Students' Rights Act because, that's right, Because uh, being pregnant while finishing your degree can be really difficult, but, but women should not be presented with a false choice of being a mom or being a student. That's right. We also passed the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act. That's a big one, too. Right now, right now, you should know, the Biden administration is proposing a regulation to restrict funds to pregnancy resource centers. We know those are the centers that states rely on to assist uh, expecting moms and dads. And that action would undercut that important work, the important material support that expecting and first-time mothers get from these centers. Our bill would prevent that regulation from coming into effect and ensure that the states can utilize these centers to help people in need. Who could be opposed to that? We're, we're passing these bills and we're marching today because it takes a lot of work to convince people that every single human child, every unborn child, has a value that is too profound and precious to ignore. And we have every reason to be optimistic, my friends, that we can change public opinion. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, at the March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. In addition to politicians, activists, and clergy, also speaking at today's March, Jim Harbaugh, University of Michigan head football coach and college football playoff national championship winner this year, and also former NFL player Benjamin Watson. We covered it live on C-SPAN, and you can find the video at cspan.org. On Wednesday, Democratic U.S. Senators held a briefing in the U.S. Capitol building on the state of abortion rights in the United States ahead of Monday's Roe v. Wade decision anniversary. Senator Patty Murray of Washington State was the senior senator in the group. I am here ahead of the anniversary of Roe v. Wade to send a message to all the Republicans who spent years crusading to overturn abortion rights and who are now working to ban abortion nationwide. Senate Democrats will not let anyone turn away from the devastation that Republicans have caused, and we will not stop pushing to restore the federal right to abortion. Let's get one thing clear right off the bat. The vast majority of Americans support the right to abortion. They understand that it should be women who are making decisions about their pregnancies, not politicians, not judges. And since Roe was overturned, we have seen that every time abortion rights was on the ballot, abortion rights have won. And tragically, we have also seen with brutal clarity how women have been put in danger and made to suffer because of Republican abortion bans. I have met with providers in Washington State who are overwhelmed and doing their best to keep up with the surge of patients from states like Idaho with strict abortion bans. But that has not stopped Republicans from doubling down on extremism. 
Anti-choice politicians and activists are still trying to ignore the enormous damage their policies are causing or pretend that it's not their fault. Will anyone who's actually listening to women and families affected by Republicans' anti-abortion crusade will tell you Republicans' attempts to dodge responsibility for the chaos and trauma they created will not work because you don't forget the fear of being pregnant when you don't want to be or the heartbreak of learning a pregnancy is not viable or the horror of learning it is life-threatening and knowing you are unable to get the care that you need in your state because Republicans forced pregnancy laws. You don't forget being investigated for having a miscarriage or driving your kid across state lines to get an abortion. You don't forget when your doctor tells you you cannot, they cannot act to save your life there because they're afraid of going to jail. And you don't ever forget losing a friend or your wife or your daughter because she couldn't get the care she needed because some politician thought their views were more important than her life. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington State, on Wednesday at a Democratic U.S. Senator's briefing on Capitol Hill. The White House says that Vice President Kamala Harris will be kicking off her nationwide Fight for Reproductive Freedoms tour on Monday, the 51st anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, with a speech in Wisconsin. White House says the vice president will highlight the harm caused by extreme abortion bans and share stories of those who have been impacted in Wisconsin and across the country. President Joe Biden signed today into law the bill that the House and Senate passed Thursday to extend temporary federal government funding and avoid a partial shutdown that would have been triggered tonight at midnight into Saturday. The new deadlines for government funding are now March 1st for some agencies and departments and March 8th for the rest. President Biden spoke about it while meeting at the White House with mayors from around the country who are in Washington for the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting. Well, thank you all for welcome to the White House. I mean, necessarily. today we get some good news. We uh, just signed a bill to keep the government open. I thought about it when I signed it, but, but you know. Some days that counts as progress. <laughs> but as many of you know, I started my career as a local official back in Delaware. And I only ran for the Senate because serving locally was too hard. <laughs> they know where you live, and they think you can solve problems that are beyond your authority. And believe me, <laughs> you call kidding aside, you have enormous respect for the I have enormous respect for the jobs you do. I really mean it. President Biden at the White House with the mayors in town for the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting. Yesterday, President Biden was asked by a reporter when he was leaving the White House what sticking points remain in the negotiations with Republicans in the Senate on immigration and border security changes that the Republicans want to add to the president's $106 billion request for aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, posted the president's answer today and wrote this. With all due respect to President Biden, who said yesterday there are no major sticking points left on border security negotiations, he is wildly off base and apparently seriously uninformed. President Biden talked about those negotiations today as well at the White House with the mayors. I love how I turn on and Biden... Biden's for a free and open border. Just tear down everything. Let everybody come. No restrictions. Well, one, I used to be a bipartisan in this country. 
and it should be won again. I've been clear from the very beginning, the system is broken. My first day in office, I sent Congress a comprehensive plan on immigration reform. My friends on the other side have done nothing with that. Over and over, I've asked for resources to step up action at the border. In October, I asked Congress to fund uh, for funding that would add another 20 additional border, 22,000 additional border agents and officers, hundreds of new immigration judges to make the judgments on the spot, a new, new detection equipment to stop fentanyl from coming into the country. And by the way, I've worked with China and Mexico to slow the flow of fentanyl in the United States. As I speak, it's way down. So let me be clear. My team has been at the table for weeks now on a partisan, with a bipartisan group of senators to negotiate a deal, including border, because I believe we need significant policy changes at the border, including changes in our asylum system to ensure that we have authorities we need to control the border. And I'm ready to act. I think, oh, God willing, and the crick not rising, as my grandpa would say, you know, I think next week we ought to be able to work out something, at least in the Senate. And I'm hopeful it's going to be the bipartisan package the Senate is going to pass, God willing. Now, the question is for the Speaker and the House Republicans. Are they ready to act as well? They have to choose whether they want to solve a problem or keep weaponizing the issue to score political points against the President. I'm ready to solve the problem. I really am. Massive changes. And I mean it sincerely. President Biden at the White House. From CBS News, student loan relief is coming to another 74,000 Americans, with President Biden on Friday announcing an additional $5 billion in debt forgiveness for borrowers, including teachers, nurses, and firefighters. The announcement marks the latest round of debt cancellations since the Supreme Court last summer blocked Mr. Biden's student loan forgiveness program and brings to $136.6 billion forgiven for more than 3.7 million Americans. The discharges are the result of fixes made by the administration to income-driven repayment, IDR forgiveness, and public service loan forgiveness, PSLF, with the Department of Education saying that payments are now being accounted for more accurately. That was from CBS News. This came up today at the White House briefing with the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. On student loans, there has been some Republican criticism from people like Senator Bill Cassidy, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, specifically saying that the president is pandering in this election year, trying to buy votes with these kinds of moves on student loans. There have been other lawmakers who've echoed something similar, saying it's not fair for Americans who didn't go to college to have to pay for those who racked up too much debt. What is the White House response to that? We've heard that rhetoric many times before. That's nothing new, uh, what you laid out to me. Uh, Look, The president made a promise that uh, he would do everything that he can to take action to give American families a little bit of a breathing room. And that's related to uh, student student debt as well. And you heard at the top when I said, I laid out that, um, you know, folks should not have to be crushed by student debt to be able to start a family, to be able to uh, be able to buy a home, right? And so this is what we've, we've seen over the past several decades. And the president has been very clear. He's going to do everything that he can uh, to give people a little bit more re- breathing room, to give people, uh, make sure he lower cost uh, for folks. And that's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing that from uh, uh, from an array of, of folks just a- across the spectrum. And so I've heard those comments. That is not something that the president believes. The president believes that is important. You get, you've got to remember, this is a president who grew up in a middle class family. Who, who knows what it's like to sit around a kitchen table 
and try to figure out which bill are you going to pay. Are you going to pay that medical bill? Are you going to be able to pay that medical bill? Are you going to be able to put food on the table? Are you going to be able to pay the tuition uh, for, uh, for your kid that's going to college? And these are difficult conversations that American families have every month. And so if the president could do something to give families a little bit of dignity, a little bit of an opportunity to really uh, be part of, uh, of a growing economy, be part of the middle class, he's going to take that action. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre at her news conference. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, posting on X, woohoo. President Biden is canceling $4.9 billion more in student debt, including for 44,000 public servants, teachers, nurses, and firefighters who've devoted their lives to service. I'll keep working to deliver as much student debt relief to as many people as possible. But from an article in Forbes, Republicans have been highly critical of the Biden administration's efforts to enact loan forgiveness. Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Republican of North Carolina, chair of the House Education and Workforce Committee, said in a letter to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona earlier this week that President Biden's, quote, six unwarranted extensions of the repayment pause have increased the deficit by $165 billion, coupled with illegal waivers, expansive regulations, and as much as $558 billion in new spending as a result of the administration's radical save repayment plan, this administration has attempted to spend an unprecedented $1 trillion on loan forgiveness during its first three years in office, all without congressional approval. This is Washington Today. Roll Call reports that the House Budget Committee advanced legislation that would create a bipartisan fiscal commission to come up with a solution to the government's worsening budget outlook and propose it to Congress for expedited action. Many Democrats opposed the plan, but three on the Budget Committee crossed over to join Republicans in approving the bill, 22 to 12. Those three are Scott Peters of California, Jimmy Panetta of California, and Earl Blumenauer of Oregon. The bill would create a 16-member fiscal commission evenly divided between House and Senate members and Republicans and Democrats, and including four non-voting members from outside Congress. The commission would be charged with writing a report and legislation to improve the long-term fiscal condition of the government, reduce deficits and debt, achieve a sustainable ratio of debt-to-gross domestic product by fiscal 2039, and improve the solvency of federal trust funds, including those that finance Social Security and Medicare. That was from the Roll Call article. The Budget Committee markup and vote was on Thursday. Here is Congressman Jody Arrington, Republican of Texas, chair of the committee. Fitch, I think... Uh, the credit agency and Moody's uh, give us some insight uh, to why we're here today and why it's important to have this fiscal commission. They said that, uh, among other things, they're concerned about the growing deficit. They talked about the drivers being mandatory spending and interest. But central to their concern and their downgrade was the lack of confidence that the United States Congress would do anything to address it, meaningful. They, they thought that the current hyper-partisan climate, uh, the broken process, uh, would not lend itself to us coming together to create a medium to long-term fiscal plan. Everything's on the table, as it should be. And, and so let's get serious lawmakers together in a room. Let's, let's get 
let's put everything on the table. Let's look at this unfunded liability that's going to bankrupt the country. And let's come up with a plan that will give our children the same freedom and opportunities we've had. Okay? That's why we do this. Is it perfect? No. Is any process perfect? No. And my friend Tom McClintock has made great observations echoed by my friend Mr. Boyle. It's not the process, it's the people. Yeah, ultimately you have to have the political will. And ultimately Congress is going to have to make the decision, but incentives drive behavior. And we, we've just got such dysfunction here that if we could turn down the politics, if we can just dial it back, put members in a room, and hash through a plan and find some consensus solutions and take it to the floor with expedited consideration, just maybe we'll find the courage to chart a path. Congressman Jody Arrington, Republican from Texas, chair of the Budget Committee at Thursday's markup of the Fiscal Commission bill. Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania, is the committee's ranking member. In the end of the day, regardless of process, it comes down to people. And whether we go the regular order route or take a bit of a detour in the fiscal commission route, it still comes back to us, the elected representatives, who will be faced with a choice before 2033 in the case of Social Security and before that in the case of Medicare. Either raise revenues, make cuts, or some combination of the two. And no super-duper maximum blue ribbon to the extreme commission will change that fact. Now, I'm quite clear in terms of the side I come down on. I believe more revenues are needed uh, into both the Social Security and Medicare trust funds. I actually will give credit to something that Ron DeSantis said. Yes, I was watching. I might have been the only one who was watching the Ron DeSantis-Nikki Haley debate. Uh, You can keep your comments on what you think about my TV viewing habits or social life to yourselves. Uh, But I was watching, and Ron DeSantis said something that was accurate. He pointed out that people paid into Social Security and Medicare while they were working in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. At At the times, those trust funds were running surpluses. Surpluses that were spent by Congresses. So it would be grossly unfair then when it's time for them to retire if all of a sudden they were facing cuts from a future commission. (laughs) Now, I also want to say that the folks who support this fiscal commission, there are a number uh, on, on this dais who are completely sincere and acting in good faith. But it would be naive to think that all of those who favor a commission are acting in the same manner. There was an op-ed in the last week by a former member, uh, Jeb Henserling in the Wall Street Journal, who flat out, and I give him credit for doing it in an upfront and above board way, made the argument for cuts, made the argument for social security cuts and Medicare cuts. The point of his, uh, and if you look at the hyperlink the Wall Street Journal used, spelled it out pretty clear. Forget the commission, we just want to go straight to the entitlement cuts, is the argument that he was making and that many others uh, on the Wall Street Journal make. So there are absolutely those who are getting ready to use a commission as a backdoor way 
to force through unpopular cuts that I completely oppose and will completely oppose. Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania, Budget Committee ranking member at Thursday's markup. Again, the bill to create the Fiscal Commission was approved by a vote of 22 to 12 and sent to the full House. More from the roll call article about how it would work. The commission has a deadline of December 12th, 2024 to issue a report and propose legislation. If more time is required, the deadline can be extended to May 15th, 2025, if a majority of the commission approves. If the commission approves legislation, each chamber that's the House and Senate, it required to vote on it without amendment. Despite expedited procedures, a final passage in the Senate would require a 60-vote threshold. That was from Roll Call. Also, this post from C-SPAN's Capitol Hill producer, Craig Kaplan, the House Ways and Means Committee today approved a bipartisan tax package. 40 to 3 was the vote. It would expand the child tax credit and reinstate business tax breaks that were part of the 2017 Trump tax cuts. And favorably reported it to the House. Three Democrats voted no. Doggett of Texas, more of Wisconsin, and Sanchez of California. Wall Street today, the Dow up 395, Nasdaq up 255, S&P up 58. As mentioned earlier, more than 300 mayors are in Washington for the U.S. Conference of Mayors winter meeting. Several Biden administration cabinet secretaries have spoken at the meeting this week including Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Secretary Buttigieg talked about building roads and bridges, pedestrian safety, making air travel safer and smoother. And he also asked the mayors to push Congress to approve a rail safety bill now that the anniversary of a major rail disaster is nearing. I have to remark that as we near the one-year anniversary of the Norfolk Southern derailment in East Palestine, While I am proud of the work that the DOT team has done to use the full range of our authority to improve uh, rail safety nationwide, including holding railroads accountable, supporting first responders, uh, protecting rail workers, there is a bipartisan Railway Safety Act sitting in Congress waiting its turn right now. Let's not allow America to get to that one-year mark and not have that Railway Safety Act become law. And I think your voices need to be heard in this because mayors and your emergency services departments shouldn't be in the dark about what's coming through your communities. We're doing our part with the, the, the authorities that we have. Congress ought to be helping, and we're calling on Congress not to get sucked into any of the other things that seem to be commanding attention over there that don't add value while this continues to sit waiting its turn. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg at the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting in Washington. An article at the Intelligencer newspaper, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, on January 1st reads that with the new year here and the one-year anniversary of the February 3rd Norfolk Southern train derailment just over a month away, legislation to avert a similar rail disaster has slowed. Introduced March 1st by Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance. Brown, Democrat from Ohio, Vance, Republican from Ohio, in response to the derailment and toxic chemical release. The Railway Safety Act of 2023 still awaits a vote on the floor 11 months later. It would mandate, among other things, wayside defect detectors, two-person crews, and increased fines against rail carriers, and grant the Department of Transportation the authority to institute and modify new safety requirements and procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials like vinyl chloride. So far, the rail industry has pushed back at significant provisions in the bill. 
particularly the two-person crew requirement that was from the Intelligencer newspaper in Pennsylvania. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. The White House says President Biden spoke by phone with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This comes a day after, as an Associated Press article puts it, the Prime Minister rejected calls from the United States to scale back Israel's military offensive in the Gaza Strip or take steps toward the establishment of a Palestinian state after the war with Hamas. The White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby opened today's White House news conference on this. President Biden had a chance to speak this morning with Prime Minister Netanyahu, the President and the Prime Minister discuss ongoing efforts to secure the release of all remaining hostages that are being held by Hamas. The two leaders also reviewed the situation in Gaza and the shift to targeted operations that will enable the flow of increasing amounts of humanitarian assistance while keeping the military pressure on Hamas and its leaders significant. The President welcomed the decision from the government of Israel to permit the shipment of flour for the Palestinian people directly through Ashdod port, while our teams are separately working on options for more direct maritime delivery of assistance into Gaza. The President also discussed recent progress in ensuring the Palestinian Authority's revenues are available to pay salaries, including for the Palestinian security forces in the West Bank. Uh, the President also discussed Israel's responsibility, even as it maintains military pressure on Hamas and its leaders, to reduce civilian harm and to protect the innocents. Uh, the president also discussed his vision for a more durable peace and security for Israel, fully integrated within the region, and a two-state solution uh, with Israel's security guaranteed. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council, today in the White House briefing room. The Israeli Prime Minister said Thursday that Israel would forever maintain control over all the land west of the Jordan River, and that makes an independent Palestinian state there impossible. He said this is a necessary condition and it conflicts with the idea of Palestinian sovereignty. What to do? I tell this truth to our American friends and I also stop the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security. More from today's White House briefing with John Kirby, reporters asking him about Democratic congressional reaction. 
So you continue to reiterate the administration's policy that you support a two-state solution. Senator Elizabeth Warren says that if Netanyahu opposes that, then we need to question why we are supporting the Netanyahu government. So why is the U.S. supporting a government that opposes U.S. policy? I'm not sure what the context means uh, of, of supporting the government, but let's just take it, I'm going to assume, it's meant in the context of this war they're fighting. Um, it is certainly supporting the, we're certainly supporting the Israeli governments to defend themselves, but it's really bigger than that. We, it's about supporting the Israeli people's right to exist, right to be a nation. I mean, again, you don't have to look any further than the 2017 manifesto of Hamas to see what their ultimate plans are. They want to wipe the country off the face of the, uh, off the map. So we're defending Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, the Israeli people get to decide who represents them, who their elected officials are. We don't decide that. Um, and we will always work with whoever the Israeli people decide to put in, uh, into power and, and government. We'll always uh, work with them, regardless of the differences, uh, maybe in, on, on political issues. Uh, they chose this government. This is the government that is uh, in charge of conducting warfare against Hamas. We're going to make sure that they have what they need, in addition to making sure, as I said in the opening statement, that we're doing everything we can to alleviate the humanitarian suffering in Gaza. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby in the White House briefing room. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington State, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, posting today. More than 100 days out from October 7th, it is more clear than ever that we need a permanent negotiated ceasefire to stop the bombing of Palestinian civilians and ensure the release of the hostages. Watch my video breaking down the state of this conflict and what must come next. The attached video runs about 10 minutes. Here is two and a half minutes of it. The United States has blocked multiple resolutions calling for a ceasefire at the United Nations. These resolutions have been supported by the majority of the United Nations, including some of our key allies. And our opposition to these resolutions and our steadfast support of Israel's government actions have left the United States increasingly isolated and have undermined our global leadership in the world. Some people argue that a ceasefire would only allow Hamas to regroup instead of eliminating it. I want to just break that down for a minute. I wholeheartedly agree that Hamas is a terrorist organization and it must go. But I and many experts on war agree that the current strategy of bombing Gaza is not the way to do this for several reasons. First, we need to place the safety and release of hostages first and foremost. The only successful pathway that has led to the release of any hostages has been when there was a temporary ceasefire. Second. Military experts have warned that an indiscriminate bombing campaign of Gaza and the collective punishment of innocent Palestinian civilians actually only serves to push some more support for Hamas. Even if this current iteration of Hamas is eliminated, there are going to be many others who emerge in waves precisely because of the cruelty of the Israeli government. Truly destroying Hamas requires building a strong coalition to carry out a long-term diplomatic solution that prioritizes peace and safety in the region. We'll need the support of our allies in the Middle East, and our current unconditional support of Israel is already causing serious harm to those relationships. Third, the White House argues that calling for a ceasefire would distance the United States from Israel and provide less leverage to, quote, control Israel's actions. But we are seeing clearly that the U.S.'s influence simply has not been enough to stop or even meaningfully constrain the violence. 
The more we unconditionally support the Israeli government, the more we attach ourselves to the actions of that extreme Israeli government and make the United States complicit in the killing of tens of thousands of innocent Palestinians. Cabinet ministers and even Netanyahu himself have vocally espoused positions like the permanent expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza and the opposition to a Palestinian state. The Israeli government has also refused to control increasing settler violence in the West Bank. These are policies that are diametrically opposed to the United States' stated goals and should cause us to reset our relationship of unconditional support to the Netanyahu government. Part of a video posted today by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington State. Israel receives about $3.8 billion each year in security assistance from the United States. The U.S. Senate this week voted down a motion from Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, that would have banned military aid to Israel if it was found to have violated human rights and international agreements in the war in Gaza. President Biden opposed Senator Sanders' proposal and has asked Congress to approve an additional $14 billion for Israel. As Russia's war in Ukraine nears the two-year mark, it's just a few weeks away, NATO will be holding its largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War starting next week. It's called Steadfast Defender 24. 90,000 troops are expected to take part from all current 31 member nations, plus Sweden, who has applied for membership to NATO, but that's not yet been ratified. During a news conference at NATO headquarters on Thursday about these military exercises, Admiral Rob Bauer, chair of NATO's military committee, was asked about reports that people in Sweden are stocking up on supplies after Sweden's government warned that war could come to the country. It is part of, of, of the package that the, the Swedish government is, is talking about. You need to have water, you need to have uh, a, a radio on batteries, and you need to have a, a, a flashlight on, on batteries to make sure that you can survive the first 36 hours. Things like that. That's simple things. But it starts there. The, the realization that not everything is planable, not everything is going to be honky-dory in the next 20 years. I'm not saying it is going wrong tomorrow, but we have to realize it's not a given that we are in peace. And that's why we have the plans. That's why we are preparing for a conflict with, uh, uh, with Russia and the terror groups. If it comes to it, if they attack us, we're not seeking any conflict. But if they attack us, we have to be ready. Top NATO official Admiral Rob Bauer at a news conference at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, on Thursday. Germany's defense minister Boris Pistorius tells the German news outlet Der Tagesspiegel that Russian President Vladimir Putin could attack the NATO military alliance in five to eight years. He said, we hear threats from the Kremlin almost every day, so we have to take into account that Vladimir Putin might even attack a NATO country one day. This is Washington Today. U.S. Congressman Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, is resigning his office on Sunday. Come Monday, he starts a new job, president of Youngstown State University. Congressman Johnson has represented Ohio's 6th Congressional District since 2011. He gave a farewell speech on the House floor on Thursday. My life has been a constant journey to serve my country. From my 26 plus years in the United States Air Force to this journey of service in Congress and into my next chapter, leading one of Ohio's finest universities. 
My commitment to service is because of the debt of gratitude that I owe. I grew up poor, but this country has given me the opportunity to prosper. I've lived the American dream, and that has kindled optimism in my heart. Sure, I know that watching the news or reading comments on the internet today can be depressing, but I truly don't believe these divisions that are rocking our nation today will hold. That's because deep down, we all want the same thing here in America, peace, freedom, and the ability to pursue the American dream on our own terms and to build a life. We mustn't let voices of anger shred our American sense of self. Congressman Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, on the House floor on Thursday. His resignation is effective Sunday. On Monday, there will be 219 House Republicans and 213 House Democrats. But two of the Republicans will be away from Washington, D.C. for a while. Harold Rogers of Kentucky was in a car accident, and Steve Scalise of Louisiana is undergoing cancer treatment. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, pointed out at a news conference this week that leaves 217 House Republicans, and it will be the second smallest House majority in U.S. history, beating only the Congress in 1917. And finally, on Washington Today, an introduction to the new host of C-SPAN's weekly interview program, Q&A. Peter Slen is a senior executive producer at C-SPAN, and we spoke to him about taking over hosting duties for this signature program that airs Sundays at 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern. It's the diversity that we can bring to topics. We can have the Senate historian. We are taping one for week two about Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin versus America. And at one point, he did not return to this country for 30 years. And there's a lot of politics involved. Hedda Hopper, Richard Nixon, Joe McCarthy. It's a it's a really rich story. So we have the ability to look at different things. So it sounds like it's not always necessarily going to be a new book and an author that's out there. So how are you going to pick the topic or the book that you're going to focus on for a week? Rachel, that is a really tough question because we do it organically and we do it in a C-SPAN way. It will be a case that I will see a book and I'll say, let's do this book for Q&A. Or Nick Raval, who is the longtime producer of Q&A, will bring in a book such as the Charlie Chaplin book and say, this sounds fascinating. And I sat down with it, read it, put my notes down, put a rundown together. It's, it's a really organic, human-level, knowledge-based process. There is nothing, nothing scientific or on paper about how we do this. And this is part of C-SPAN's 40-plus year history. This is how we've done things. Hey, we should get that hearing. Hey, we should cover this event. That's a good book for us, etc. And y'all know how this works here, Shannon and Rachel. I mean, one of you guys might come to me say, hey, here's a good book. 
and say, let's let's do this topic. Or, man, this was a really interesting person. I'd love to learn some more about them, that type of thing. And that's one of our strengths is that we have not made this formulaic in any way. Peter Slen, the new host of Q&A, C-SPAN's weekly interview program, part of a podcast with him that you can find in full at cspan.org slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Q&A airs Sundays at 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern. It started in 2004, and Peter Slen will be the third host in the history of the program. All new episodes of Q&A begin on January 28th. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's Evening Newsletter Word for Word and get the stories making headlines in Washington, D.C. emailed to you every day. It's free. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. 